Thank you, Walter, for uh, reading the scripture this morning. And uh, it's just great to uh, have it warmer today. Last Sunday was just unbelievable. Uh, Mike, you brought Florida back with you this week. And uh, thank you for bringing some warm weather back into this state because uh, what a difference a week makes. Well, we've got a special presentation by our transition team uh, toward the end of this worship hour. I trust that all of you are going to stay to hear what they have to share with you. And uh, I think that many of you got this overview of the transition process, which uh, I know that uh, Jerry and Bella were making available to you as you came in this morning. Uh, Feel free to have that in your lap as they share with you uh, later in the service. But right now, we're going to open the Word of God together. Uh, Would you bow your head with me one more time? Lord, uh, your word is so practical. It just gives us uh, food for our soul. It just guides us in our daily living. It tells us about you. You said that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through you. So it shows us the way, have a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, and then how to live for Him. And this morning, this is one of those passages of Scripture that just uh, can be incredibly convicting because we all fall short of this one, Lord, in some way. And yet, you don't just leave us hanging there. You give us some practical steps out of the the mess that we often find ourselves in. So, Lord, this morning, just give us ears to hear your word, and then, Lord, hearts to believe what you say, and then, Lord, enable us to live out what you teach us. We give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, several years ago, I picked up an article I'm not sure whether it was the Omaha World Herald. We were living in Nebraska at the time or what newspaper it was, but it was a story of a man from Tampa, Florida, near where Mike was this last week, and he got in an altercation with another driver that was driving a motor vehicle near his. Both men got out of the car, the article says, and Gary Durham faced up to 30 years behind bars after this episode was finished because Durham, who was 26, and Timothy Gibbs, who was 48, got out of their cars and they got in an argument because of road rage. One of them attempted to run the other one, I guess, off the road. And as they were standing there arguing, Gibbs had his hands down to beside, beside uh, himself and Gary Durham punched him He fell back on the pavement, spent nine days in the hospital, and eventually died. Now, we've all read stories like this. This is typical of the culture that we're living in today. And it violates the Sixth Commandment, which Jesus is going to be talking about this morning. It's very clear in the Word of God that we should not murder. He killed this guy out of an act of road road rage. Now, interestingly enough, I read another article a short time later, and this took place in Great Britain. And the title of this article is, Drivers Filled with Road Rage Are Blamed for Deaths in Britain. 
In a country famous for good manners, drivers are giving in to road rage. And they go on to tell this story of Stephen Cameron and his girlfriend who stopped off at a store to grab some bagels. They get back on the road, and this driver cuts in front of them. And Stephen Cameron, this 21-year-old, just happened to kind of shake his head at him. And so he pulled over, got out of his car. Both men got out of their car, and he stabbed him to death. Stephen Cameron died. Now, obviously, both of these men deserved the sentence that they got. They were in danger of judgment. But let's imagine for just a moment that these stories ended up differently. Let's say that these two episodes actually occurred, but instead of the two gentlemen who I just told you about getting getting killed, the other driver just shouts obscenities at him, and he gets angry at him, but he doesn't do anything. He just imagines what he wants to do to him, but he doesn't actually kill the other individual. And let's say that you're on the jury on this occasion, and you're hearing all of this take place, and you find out that he just vocalized his anger. He didn't actually murder the other guy. What would you do in that situation if you were on the jury? Would you rule in favor of them spending time in jail? Would you rule in favor of them being executed, or what would you do? Well, I'll tell you what I'd do. If I were on the jury on that occasion, I would rule that they go free. Because after all, I mean, all they did was just get a little bit angry. And they just shouted at the person. They didn't really do anything to them. They just verbalized their anger. So they don't really deserve to be judged, do they? They don't deserve to be in jail or executed for just getting angry. And yet, if you read this passage of Scripture this morning, and if I understand what Jesus is telling us, Amazingly, if you listen to the words that Walter just read, amazingly, he says that the person who got angry with his brother is liable to judgment. They're liable to be executed. And in the Old Testament, if you murdered somebody, it was an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You You were in danger of being killed not just having your sentence reduced to nine years or spending a limited period of time in jail, you would have been executed. And Jesus says here that this person that gets angry is deserving of the same judgment. Now, that amazes me, and so that makes me take another, a second look at Jesus. I mean, what is he telling us here? What do you do with Jesus here? I mean, this is pretty stirring stuff. Listen to the word of God again. You've heard it said, it was said to people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment also. You see that in verse 21. And again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, the local governing council. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that's pretty stern stuff. So what's he trying to tell us here? Well, in order to understand what Jesus is teaching us here, you have to go back up the page and look at verse 20 again. 
Look at verse 20, the verse just before verses 21 and 22 in this passage. And if you were here last week, and I know that many of you weren't because of the weather, then you would have heard that verse 20 is the conclusion to verses 1 through 19. But it's also the introduction to this passage and all of the other examples and commandments that Jesus is going to be talking about in the next several weeks as we work our way through the end of chapter 5 here in, in the book of Matthew. And in verse 20, Jesus said very clearly, I tell you that unless your righteousness far exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if you were here last week, then you remember that the scribes and Pharisees developed all kinds of external measuring sticks. They piled on all kinds of minutia to the Old Testament law to make sure that people were obeying it. And so in their oral commentary... The halakha is what they called it. That's the southern pronunciation for that word. Or the hadakha, uh, the the written uh, uh, commentary on the law. They added all this external stuff, extra stuff that people had to live up to. And they piled it on. And people looked at the Pharisees and they thought, wow, are they ever righteous I mean, they're not only doing the law, but they're doing this and they're doing that. And who can ever be like them? And Jesus says, unless your righteousness and unless your way of right living far exceeds theirs, you won't make it into into the kingdom of heaven. And that's what he's saying here. And in reality, what he's saying is, listen, stop it. Stop all this external measuring stuff. And look at the inside. Look at your heart. Jesus wants us to go deeper than just how we're doing in our outward actions and whether we're measuring up externally. He wants us to look at our hearts. The true intent of the commandments in the Old Testament, the true meaning of the laws Jesus gave them to us. And so I've got these two statements in the notes if you're following along on page two. Righteousness or right living in God's eyes doesn't begin with our actions or our external practice. The Pharisees emphasize that. The things that we do are the things that we don't do. But righteousness, genuine right living, the way that Jesus wants us to live, the true meaning of the Old Testament law as God intended it, in God's eyes begins with our attitudes in here, in our heart, our inward attitude. And so Jesus is calling us to look on the inside this morning as we look at these verses in the rest of this chapter. Now, in the example today and the other example that Jesus gives us, he really just takes a step back then, and he looks beneath the surface to the inner intent of our hearts. And so the the real issue here is not murder. The real issue, the sin, if you're taking notes, if you got that little insert in front of you this morning, the real issue, 
that Jesus puts his finger on in this text is unresolved anger. Unresolved anger. That's the sin that he pinpoints in this passage of Scripture. And in God's eyes, not the Pharisee's eyes or man's eyes, cultivating anger toward a brother or a sister in Christ. And notice that word brother in this passage. I think it's repeated four times. We're talking about our relationships now as the people of God, in the church of God, as the family of God, as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we're cultivating anger toward a brother or a sister, it's the same as practicing murder. If we allow that anger, to put it bluntly, if I, if I allow my unresolved anger, if I hold on to it, if I allow that to turn into hatred or bitterness or ill will, where I'm just really wishing another person's ill rather than their well-being, and if it results in any hurtful action or words, in essence, that's like murder. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so Jesus raises the bar. He raises the bar. You remember last week, the Pharisees and scribes thought that he was diluting the law, that he was destroying the law, if you look at verses 17 through 20. But Jesus wasn't doing that. He was actually raising the bar, not lowering the standard as he applies the Old Testament law to our lives in these passages. Now, it's interesting to me, there's two words for anger in the Greek language. You know, in English, we say, I'm mad at you. When we say, I'm angry, and it's the word angry. But in Greek, they had other words. In fact, I've got a little worksheet that has six different words which describe bitterness or getting mad at somebody or angry. They had different words to describe the emotion of anger. And one of those words was the word thumos, which described explosive anger. It would be like somebody stepped on your foot and you blow up at them. Let them know what they did. And then you're over it. But the other word is the word which is used in this passage, and it's the word orgizo. And it's a word which describes a settled state of anger. It means that I blow up, but then I don't get over it. I hold on to it, and I let that anger settle in and fester, and it calcifies into bitterness or ill will or, or unforgiveness. That's the word which Jesus uses here in this passage of Scripture. It describes the state of our hearts when we allow ourselves to get angry and stay angry, and then we want to get Revenge reminds me of a somewhat humorous story that I ran across a couple of years ago. Guy used to like to collect old articles from newspapers, and he clipped an article out of the 1930 edition of the Chicago Herald, and it tells a story of a husband and a wife in the Chicago, pardon me, Herald Examiner. This strange story, the article goes, is a story of Harry Havens of Indiana who went to bed and stayed there for seven years. Now, can you imagine going to bed 
and staying there for seven years. Now, why did he do it? Here's the story. For seven years, he laid in his bed with a blindfold over his eyes because he was ticked off at his wife. And this is what happened. Havens was the kind of husband who liked to help around the house. This is a true story. He'd hang pictures. He'd wipe the dishes clean. And one day, his wife scolded him for the way he was performing one of these tasks. And he got so mad, and he resented it so much that he was reported to have said, all right, if that's the way you're going to be, if that's the way you feel, I'm going to, the bed, going to bed for the rest of my life. I don't want to hear anything. I don't want to see anything. And that explains the blindfold. Didn't want to hear, didn't want to see anything. And so he went to bed for seven years. And the end of this article says that he finally got out of bed after seven years because his bed was uncomfortable. Well, I think my bed would be uncomfortable too after seven years. Now, Harry thought that he was punishing his wife, but who was he really punishing? He was really just punishing himself. Read a quote many years ago, and it goes like this. Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And it's true. When you allow yourself to become revengeful, when you allow yourself to get mad and stay mad, and you're going to get even somehow, some way, even if it means I'm going to bed for seven years to teach you a lesson, it's like drinking poison in order to get even with that other person. Now, notice Jesus' sentence for this sin. Look at verse 22. Notice the progression here as Jesus works, works us into what he's trying to teach us. When we allow our anger to settle in our souls like a gray, wintry day, we ultimately are going to have to answer to God. Look at the beginning of verse 22, look at the middle, and then look at the end of that verse. He says, but I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And that's probably the judgment of the local court that he's describing there. And again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which just meant, you imbecile, or you stupid nitwit, or you good for nothing, if we were using our common English language, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin was kind of like the Supreme Court. But then Jesus goes on to say, but anyone who says, you fool, which meant you worthless, empty person, you blockhead, will be in danger of the fire of hell. That's what Jesus says. And this word for hell is an interesting word. It's the word Gehenna. Gehenna, if you know anything about the Old Testament, was a place south of Jerusalem where they offered idols to the, to the or pardon me, they offered children, sacrificed children to the idol of Molech. And you can read about it in First and Second Kings. And it became kind of the trash dump for for outside of the Jerusalem walls. It'd be a little bit like the, the, the dump where we take our trash here in Westerlo. Didn't take Elizabeth and I very long, long to, to learn where that dump is up here at the top of the hill. We like to go walking, and so we walk by that thing, and, and they burn trash up there, don't they? 
And they did that south of Jerusalem. And that was the word Gehenna. And it became a symbol for our final, your final destination if you're apart from Christ, if you, if you don't give your life to him. It was a final description for the final judgment, a symbolic of that. And so the bottom line is Jesus is t- teaching us that we're not only in danger of judgment from the Supreme Court or a local court if we allow ourselves to get this way and do this, but ultimately we're going to have to answer to God himself. That's what results when we allow ourselves to become hateful and hurtful and unforgiving in our bitterness towards someone. Hebrews 9.27 says very clearly, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this comes the judgment. Another man said, in the choir of life, it's easy to fake the words, but someday each of us will have to sing a solo before God. And that's true. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I realize how much I need the grace of God in my life because I don't measure up. How many times have I been there and done that or done this and blown it in this area in my own life? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we all come up short here, don't we? And that's what we were talking about last week at the end of the day This discussion on the law points us to our need for grace because law points out our sin and our mess-ups and our failures and where we, we fall short in all of our relationships and our inability to live the life that pleases God. But the gospel of grace shows us our doorway to freedom by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. And on the top of of page four in your notes this morning, I've given you a number of verses, passages of Scripture. And I hope you'll go home and, and study those because Paul struggles with this. The good that I would do, I don't do. Lord, I know I'm not supposed to get angry like that. But here I blew it again. I've done it again. The good that I would do, Paul says in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, I I don't do it. But then when we get to chapter 8, he talks about the grace of God and the enabling power of the Spirit of God that sets us free to do the will of God in our lives. Now, if all of this is true then this morning, as we wrap this up and prepare to hear from our transition team, What does Jesus prescribe for us? What are some practical steps we can take to do better? By the grace of God and within help of his enabling spirit. Well, look at verses 23 through 26. And notice what Jesus says again. Therefore, in light of the sin and in light of the sentence, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. And now he's going to give us two parables, two illustrations or stories. The first one is from the scene of worship, bringing your gift in the temple before the altar. You remember that You've offended your brother, and you, you, you remember that. You're, it's obvious he's got something against you. He says, leave it there and go to him. And then the second one is from 
the courtroom, not the worship room. He says, leave your gift there, be reconciled to your brother. And then he says, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way. Now, notice two words there in these, these verses. Notice the word reconcile. Do you see that word? Go be reconciled to him. And then notice the word settle matters quickly. Those are two interesting Greek words here in these verses of Scripture. In verses 24 and 25. The first word literally means to renew a friendship. You know, sometimes you offend your best friend and you just need to go make it right. That's this word, to renew, make it new again, just like it used to be before that happened or before I said this or before I did that to you. Reconciliation. And then this second word, to settle matters quickly, means to make friends with or to make up, make, make up with. To, and we used to tell our kids that, go, go make it up to them, make up with them. And so then Jesus gives us four little practical thoughts. It's, yeah, how do we do that? How do we settle matters? How do we reconcile? Well, the first thought he gives us is this idea of being sensitive. Notice what he says in verse 23. You come to worship. You're coming into church some morning. There you are in the narthex. And you think, wow, gosh, Lord, I did say that this week. It'd be like saying, you know what? I'm not going into church today until I make that right. That's more important than coming in and singing a song, making it right. And, and it's that idea of being sensitive to, to the whisper of God in your, in your heart, sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit, being open to what God's trying to, to say in your life, being sensitive when we remember When we call something to mind, then we're sensitive to the voice of the Holy Spirit. So so be sensitive. One of the things that I love about being here in New York right now is we left all of the clocks in our home in Nebraska, back in Nebraska. I'm a very sensitive sleeper, and I don't like to hear clocks going tick, tick, tick when I'm trying to go to sleep at night. That's why I moved to New York and brought Elizabeth with me so I could get away from those clocks. I don't like it. I can't go to sleep when I hear those clocks ticking. And sometimes I've even known Elizabeth likes to keep a clock on her side of the bed. I'll take that clock and I'll I'll move it. I'll put it someplace because I don't want to hear the clock ticking. Sometimes we're like that in our relationship with God. Have you ever been that way? The Lord's tapping you on the shoulder. He's whispering to you. He's trying to get through to you. It's like a clock ticking, and and you just can't escape it. Be sensitive. Listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, to to the Lord, if he's trying to get, get your attention this morning. And then the second thing I want you to see in this passage of Scripture is that we need to be proactive. Look at verse 24. 
leave your gift there. If you remember, if you're sensitive enough, if you put yourself in your brother's shoes and you realize they've got something against you, then be proactive. Leave your gift there and do something about it. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and worship or offer your gift. Then come back to the temple or to the sanctuary. And notice that the responsibility, interestingly enough, always lies with me. To be proactive means to be active beforehand. As you're on the way, look at verses 25 and 26. Do it first. Be proactive. Don't let any grass grow under your feet. And if you don't wait for the other person to come to you. How many times have I done that in my, my marriage? Well, I'm just waiting, Lord, until she comes and humbles herself and tells me that she was wrong. Then I'll make it right. But I'm waiting to hear from her first. How many times have I done that in my marriage? Or We've all been guilty of it in different relationships. But, but to be proactive means that I go, I don't wait the, for the other person to come to me. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Now turn to Luke 17, verses 3 and 4 for just a moment. I want you to see something. Here in Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, Jesus says this. Pay attention to yourselves. Which is just another way of saying, examine yourself. Look at your own life. Be sensitive, that first thing that we were saying. If your brother sins, let him know it. Rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I'm sorry, I repent, you must forgive him. But what I want you to see here in Luke 17 is that in this situation, you're the one that's being offended. Isn't that right? If your brother sins against you and he repents, forgive him. In the other situation, it's your brother who's offended. It's just the reverse in these two passages of Scripture. But in either situation, please notice, regardless of whether you're the one offended or you're the one offending, regardless of the situation, the responsibility always lies with you. It always lies with me. With I, me, if you're aware of that something needs to be made right. So be proactive and then be swift. Proverbs eighteen nineteen says, An offended brother is more yielding than a fortified city, and disputes quarreling are like the barred gates of a citadel. There's a lot of wisdom in the book of Proverbs. How many times did you hear as a kid growing up, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, and time heals all wounds? I'll just give it time. After about five years, well, I'll I'll feel more like forgiving him than I do now. Nothing could be further from the truth. It's quarreling is like the the barred gates in in a citadel, in a castle. And the longer you wait to resolve that situation or that issue, the more solidified those bars in that castle become. So be swift about it. Settle the matter. Look at verse 25 again. Quickly. That adverb is important with your adversary. 
while you're on the way. Don't let the bars of the castle become thicker. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't let the devil get this kind of foothold in your life. When we, we allow the devil, when we don't resolve our anger, then we allow the enemy to get in and gain a foothold. And that can happen in a marriage. We just had one illustration this morning. It can happen at work. It can happen in church. So don't allow Satan to have that kind of foothold. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. Resolve it quickly. Don't delay. Leviticus 19, 17 and 18 says, Don't hate your brother in your heart. Now, even in the Old Testament, we're getting down to the inside. Rebuke your neighbor frankly. Go talk to him. Tell him about it so you will not share in his guilt. Don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, Leviticus 19.17. And then the final thought here is be forgiving. Be sensitive be proactive, be swift, and be forgiving. We see all four of those thoughts in verses 23 through 26. And you know, I think Jesus gives this to us for our own good. I've got this little article up here with me this morning. It says, long-term anger called a health risk. You're only doing a job on yourself if you fail to follow Jesus' recipe in these verses of Scripture. Well, there was a story of two little boys. Their names were Harry and James. They'd finished supper one evening, and they were playing until bedtime. Harry hit James with a stick. Now, that never happened in your family growing up, did it? But Harry hit James with a stick, and there were tears and bitter words followed, and charges and accusations were being exchanged, and the mother sent him up to bed, and as they were getting into bed, mom turned to James, and he said, now, James, I want you to forgive your brother. You're going to have to forgive him. I know he hit you with a stick, but I want you to forgive him. It's the Christian thing to do, and this is what James said. He said, well, okay, he said. I'll forgive him tonight, but if I don't die before I wake up, he better watch out in the morning. (laughs) How many times have we felt that way? We've all been there. But may God make us more like Clara Barton, founder of the American Red Cross, Once she was reminded of something that somebody had done which was especially cruel to her. She'd been hurt. And her friend went up to her and reminded her of it. She said, don't you remember that? Don't you remember? And this is what Clara Barton said. She said, no, she said, I distinctly remember forgetting it. And then the author of this little story says, you can't be free and happy if you harbor grudges. So put them away. Get rid of them. 
take them out to the trash dump. Collect postage stamps if you need to, or coins, but don't collect grudges. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, so clear, so simple, it gets right to the heart of it, and yet so difficult to live in our relationships. And that's where we need your grace. So, Lord, this morning as we close out the message portion of this service, we just ask for your help, your enabling grace, as we leave here today, later this morning, to just put into practice what you've taught us today. And we thank you for the practicality of your word, not just how straightforward it is and how simple, but just how practical you don't leave us hanging. You tell us how to, how to follow through and do it. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm going to invite, invite now the transition team to come up, and they're going to share with you for a few moments. And I hope that everyone...